The Pate said when they got back to their seat, I could start, so that's on them, not on me. Good to have everybody here this morning. Um, I know we've got some people that are traveling through with students moving in. We had our freshmen that uh, came in on Friday and upperclassmen that came uh, over the weekend at some point. So it's good to have uh, families here in town. And uh, for class, if we've got any that are visiting, glad that you're here. Uh, I know that we might have a few more that pop in uh, during worship as well. Uh, just a reminder uh, for our congregation that next week we're doing our College Student Sunday. Uh, we'll share some more information on that, but go ahead and make your plans for that. So we're finishing up our study that we've been doing in here. I know it's uh, a couple of weeks left of the quarter, but with college students coming back, of course, I'm going to switch over uh, and be a part of that class. The topic that we're going to be covering today to wrap everything up is looking at the New Testament and how the law fits into it. And there's about 500 different ways that I could close out this class and probably a whole other quarter of information I could use just in this session itself. And so I'm going to condense 12 uh, weeks worth down into this one. Let's see if we can accomplish it. But we're thinking about uh, going from uh, last week, we saw Jesus and his interaction with the law. And one of the reasons why he was taken to the cross is because of what people were seeing with the law thinking that he was uh, breaking it in some way. But going back through his teachings, and we did the life of Jesus in reverse order, we saw that he was dedicated to what God's law is all about. And that's why we come back and we finish up our two main principles. The law is an extension of God's nature. And as we come into the New Testament, we're realizing this continual part of anything that God shares that uh, he constitutes as a law that is an extension of his nature. That when you see the New Testament letters, that they establish a new law, a new covenant, and it is in continuation for what God has already started. Now, there is going to be this stop of, our, we don't follow the law of Moses any longer, but we are following the law of Christ. And you're going to see that phrase as you study through maybe the book of Romans and Galatians as well. And the next part is, if you love God, you're going to do whatever he asks you to do. And I hope those points stay profound in your mind and that we have really driven those home as we've uh, talked about at the beginning of each session so far. I want to go back as we've been looking at the book of Deuteronomy. That was our founding place. I want to go to Deuteronomy chapter 29 and look at a couple of verses here. So this is uh, the end of Moses retelling the law, and he's given the blessings and the cursings all over again. But there's another passage in here that I want to highlight for our discussion this morning before we jump into the New Testament to use this as our, our platform. In Deuteronomy 29, starting in verse 2, it says, And Moses summoned all Israel to them. You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. They saw many great things happen in their very presence, things that God did by his outstretched hand because of his great love and his mercy that he showed to people. They saw these things. When we were thinking about Jesus and the law, you see what Jesus did, and he had the authority, and you could watch and you could know that he was the Son of God, and it was very easy to connect the dots and to draw this conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. He has the same power, or you know, God's power with him, these things working together, the same thing that Israelites saw in the Old Testament. And here's where this is guiding us to the New Testament, if you keep reading from that passage and look at verse 4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. Now let's stop and think about this verse just for a moment. I want to present a question to you. How is God going to give them a new heart? Multiple times throughout this class that we've talked about this new covenant that's coming, and a heart 
that would be, you know, a heart of stone or a calloused heart that was going to be removed and something else was going to take its place because the Word of God finds a seat and a place in man's heart. All these things, all these commandments and the law itself, that it was speaking to the heart of men, and it was something that we could understand because it's part of God's nature and there's this correlation and connection between it. But if he's saying in this passage that they don't understand until God gives them something else, how would you answer this question? How is God going to give them a new heart? And even those passages that, that we looked at in Jeremiah chapter 31 or Ezekiel 28, what does this new heart look like? How is this going to be accomplished? What are your thoughts? Okay, so God's demonstration of his goodness, that that should compel people, that will soften your heart when you realize who God is, what he does, what he continues to do, the, the great love that he had that he was willing to send his son. Uh, so absolutely, just understanding God's goodness, that that can soften a heart. Very good. What else? All right, so they're misunderstanding the law and what it was meant to do, that they were focusing just on the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law cuts deeper to the heart. And we see that with just the word of God at large, that it's able to cut to the very inner being of who we are. And so a misunderstanding of that would prohibit the word from going deeper in their life. I think there's uh, something valuable there. Uh, what else in response to this? Yes. Okay, so then this brings out a, a very valid and important question for us to look at. Why did God not allow them to understand? Um, and we're going to attempt to answer that through the, the rest of our time this morning because we're going to find both Jesus and Paul referencing this idea. And so why would God harden their hearts? Maybe is it the same thing like what we saw with Pharaoh or maybe some of these other people throughout the Old Testament? What does this hardening of hearts look like? Were they blinded by something? Is God doing it intentionally? Is he trying to deceive them? All these are questions that you would look at and figure out what's going on here. Why did he not give them eyes to see and ears to, to hear and understand? Jesus and both Paul, Paul and Jesus will have an answer to that. So very good. Hang on to that. And if we get to the end and we have further questions, uh, we'll, we might need to go back and connect these verses again. But that's a great question along with it. Yeah. Yeah, so God has the ability to use people's momentum, their own momentum for his purpose. So, um, you know, if you, 
if you think about sports, um, fighting styles, things along those lines, if somebody's throwing a punch at you, the best way to defend against that is to use their own momentum. So if somebody's throwing a punch towards you, you want to pull their arm into you, throw them off balance. We see that all through uh, different ways of just how the body operates that, you know, momentum can be changed in another direction. And we see that in a lot of different ways in life. But I think to use that and uh, correlate it over to the spiritual aspect that man has a momentum. If you make it a path to fall after sin and things along those lines, God's like, I can use you. Look at how many times he used a wicked nation as his servant. Read the book of Isaiah, uh, particularly at the end of Isaiah. He talks about these different servants that he has from these other nations. He uses their momentum and allows them to uh, punish Israel as we saw through the exiles. They were already making that path. And he's like, fine, I'm just going to use you for my purpose. And a good passage, if you want to sit down somewhere and study this, Romans chapter 9. Uh, make note of that, Romans chapter 9, and you'll find a discussion that Paul has concerning that where he even uses Pharaoh as an example. And he talks about the potter and the clay and the potter becoming um, useless. It's not that the potter messed up. It's the, the collapse over on itself. He's like, fine, I can make you into something else that'll be for my purpose. So make a little notation. Romans chapter 9 will give you a good response to that. And even with Pharaoh, uh, you look at the multiple times that that phrase, the hardening of uh, Pharaoh's hearts, you can find it in Exodus chapter 4 when the first instance is there. But then when you go through the plagues themselves, you find Pharaoh hardening his heart. And then it's this interchanging of the language of God hardening it and Pharaoh doing it. And it's kind of these things happening simultaneously. And that's why I'm saying that God will use man's momentum for his purpose. And you can see it through those times. So with Israel, what do we learn? Um, what was this blinding of their heart or this uh, misunderstanding? What is this exactly? And why is he not giving them ears to hear and uh, a heart to, uh, to understand these things? If you read through Deuteronomy, it looks like God has extended every single possibility to them if they would just fall in line. And I think that's the issue. If we could probably just show our hand a little bit before we start this discussion, is that God afforded every opportunity to these people. They just didn't take it. And so they didn't understand, but it was because of their own mindset that they stopped short. And there's a few ways to see this. And so let's go into this a little further. Um, here's the first instance, and this is bringing us over to what Paul is saying. And so, of course, you know, we've got to jump back and forth. It's just part of it. So let's go to uh, Exodus chapter 34. So this is after Moses receives the Ten Commandments, the tablets, um, remember, we looked at these verses from Deuteronomy's perspective, and the people had heard the voice of God, they, they saw the Ten Commandments, and they said, look, we, we need you, Moses, to be the, the person that goes and talks to God, and you come back. Here's what, the, uh, what Moses says when he's writing Exodus. This is how the people viewed what was going on here, and it's a very unique situation, but starting in verse 29. When Moses came down from, the Mount, uh, from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Now, there's going to be a word that's inserted here with the glory of God. They didn't, they could not handle, did not want to see the glory of God. It's too intimidating to them. Do you remember, as we referenced last time in John chapter 1, about you know Jesus being the glory of God and uh, seeing him because he's been in the presence of God? There's a lot that you can insert here, but let's keep reading verse 30. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near to him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned, and Moses talked with them. 
Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking them, he put a veil over his face. So he's teaching them all this kind of stuff. He's like, look, I've been in the presence of God. I didn't even know it when I came down, but you're seeing this, and now I'm understanding it. And he continues to talk to them and think about them listening and hearing all this and, and how intimidated they would be that this man's face is shining because he's been in the presence of God. And he's like, I'm going to keep using that. But then when he's done, he puts a veil over his face. Verse 34, when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he, uh, excuse me, what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses and the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So it's just another opportunity for God to have a visual thing for them to see that Moses has been in the presence of God. And really, that's just prepping us to understand Jesus. When you see Jesus, you know he's been in the presence of God. Um, like in Matthew chapter 17, the transfiguration and the voice of God saying, you know, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased and all the changing. I mean, you see all of these connections in the ministry of Jesus that's just drawing on all the things that we've been seeing through the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy and Exodus. But here's how Paul uses this passage. Oh, excuse me. Um, hold that one in your mind. Let's uh, pull in one more verse and then we'll uh, go further. Uh, Matthew chapter 13. As I told you, Jesus is going to use some of the same language that we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 29, but uh, some of the prophets use that language as well. Isaiah was one of them. And so Jesus is going to be quoting Isaiah that's, I think, pulling off of what we saw in Deuteronomy. Let's look at Matthew chapter 13. And really, I'd uh, given you a little bit of a hint when we've talked about this chapter. And this is one of the self-contained ones, if you want to put it at the beginning of Matthew chapter 13, how to understand parables. Uh, this is what you find all the way through the chapter. You find him giving some big parables and explanations of them. And then he ends, for us, ends the chapter by giving us some little parables. And he's like, okay, let's see if you can handle this. Let's see if you can do it. But in the middle of Jesus talking with them about parables and the disciples coming back, they had some questions. And starting in Matthew chapter 13, uh, verse 10, and uh, sorry if that text is too small, but I think it'll be all right. Um, then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. You see the connection? Verse 14. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. You already see the answer that's coming out in what Jesus is teaching, even just about parables, these simple stories that have uh, you know, these heavenly meanings behind them. He's like, look, they're not seeing, they're not hearing, although the words are coming in and they're witnessing these things, they don't understand why they have closed their eyes. They have closed their ears. They have allowed their hearts to be hardened. And he says, if they would turn, I would heal them. Now that word turn, when we talk about it in New Testament Christianity terms, what's another word for turn? Repent. They would just repent, stop all of this wickedness. And uh, as I was studying back through Deuteronomy, uh, I can't think of the exact verse uh, right now, but I think as you read through chapter 29, 
there's a part in there where Moses is telling them, he says, God promised that he would never destroy the land. He would never remove you from it unless you disobeyed him. All the promises of God are substantial. They're concrete. They are there unless you don't hold up your end of the deal. That's it. Think about Jonah. Uh, I was just uh, listening to uh, a retelling of Jonah. And when Jonah goes into the city and he starts preaching to them, he says, Nineveh is going to be overthrown in 40 days unless they repent. Now, that's never in there, but what we find is that that's exactly what happened. Nineveh repented from, you know, from the animals all the way up to the king. They all changed, and that didn't happen. And you see that over and over again with the prophets. They tell them, this is the destruction that's coming to you. Unless you change, this is going to happen. And you find those times where they change, and then God takes care of them. The book of Judges, that cycle of um, teaching them to come back to God, is the same thing that we're seeing here. And when we see that, you know, why did God not give them understanding? He gave them every tool. He's just not going to make the decision for them. Allow that to sit on us for a little bit. God will give us every opportunity, but he expects us to respond. That's just the truth of the matter. The weight then lies on us of what will you do with what he has given us? Will you see Jesus for who he is and what he taught? And will you understand that he's the son of God or will you allow things of this earth to distract you? Um, and we'll see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Yes, sir, Robert. Very good. And uh, just to reiterate what he said, uh, Jeremiah 29, 13, was that the verse that you referenced? It talks about those that seek God. Um, how many passages can you think of that encourages us and tell us to seek after God? Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you, things along those lines. Um, that it, Those are the kind of people that God is looking for, those that seek after him. John chapter, 20, uh, chapter 4, verse 24, talking about those that worship him, those that seek him. It's a reoccurring theme. If you seek him, you will find him. And then uh, the other illustration, just talking about a heart of wax that when it's exposed to, to heat, that it will be melted. Um, just that uh, in the presence of God and understand what he, he does, that, uh, that can soften and, uh, and, and melt. Yeah. So with that, it's the same, the wax is the same thing. It just depends on what uh, it's being exposed to and how it interacts with it. Okay. Mark? Oh, sorry. We know from Naomi that 
Yeah. Yeah, so we have a lot of examples in the Old Testament of people that decide to either follow God or not. Jonah, as we referenced, you know, God was going to make sure that he was going to teach him a lesson, and we find how he responded to that. But even Jeremiah, what is it, Jeremiah 20, verse 11, that talks about, you know, if I said that I uh, was no longer going to speak in God's name, he said there was within me a fire welling up within me, and I can't hold it in. If it's truly important, if it is the Word of God, it has changed us drastically, and we're going to need to teach it. Um, but you do find instances maybe, and, and in that passage, uh, he was talking about the, the enemies that are around him, like they're mocking him and all the things that uh, Jeremiah went through. But he said, I've got to talk about it. it doesn't matter what is going on around me. Mark, were you going to make a comment? Yeah, so in uh, Romans chapter 1, it talks about God giving them over to a debased mind or uh, deprived ways of uh, acting. Yeah, you know, he's using their momentum. He said, if that's the way that you're going, this is what's going to happen. So looking at Matthew chapter 13, as I said, Jesus talks about this passage, and he's going to give us an understanding of it. There's a few other ways that Paul addresses this as we go through the New Testament. Um, all that's built up to get to Paul, so um, that's just the way we're going to do things around here. But let's uh, talk about 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We could really spend time in each one of the books to see how Paul talks about the law. But I'm trying to connect a thread from where we started about this uh, seeing and not seeing and hearing and not hearing uh, idea connected to Moses and this veil and really what's going on. You could read all of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And Paul is looking at the tablets of stone versus the, the hearts of men. And so he's going to put them side by side. And I just want to draw a few observations um, from these verses. And I'll be tempted to read all the way through, and we just, we'll see if we even get that far. So uh, here's the first thing. You've got stone versus hearts. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, looking at verse 3, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. We'll get to, to Romans in just a second as well, but in Romans chapter 2, it talks about the Word of God, the law of God being written on men's hearts. That Even what we saw in Deuteronomy, he says that these things are not over there or, or down here, that you can't reach them. They're actually within us. And when Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 10, he says Christ is with us. We have all the answers to these things. The Word of God is close to us. It's not something over there. It's that book, those teachings. It's the book that has made an interaction in my life, that has made a change in my life, has transformed me. It has changed my heart. It's not just things written on a tablet of stone. It's the livingness of men. So you got this uh, stone versus hearts. Then uh, he makes this statement in, uh, let's see, verse 6. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, to understand what he means by the Spirit, the letter kills, we're going to see some verses in Romans chapter 7 where he, he explains this a little bit further. Um, he's even going to call this a ministry of death. Calling it um, the words that, that kill or the letters that kill, it's 
because the Pharisees did not allow them to actually, did not allow those words, I'm using them as an example, but any of the Jews, they did not allow the words to permeate their life. All of the teachings that God gave his people, it was that they may love him first and love their neighbors themselves. He's like, I've got to give you all the rules about putting things around the top of your house so that your neighbor doesn't fall off and get killed. I'm giving you all that just so you can understand what does it mean to love other people? How far are we willing to go? So if you have this boundary of you love God first, but in the second one, you love your neighbors yourself. And if I'm responding to this you know, golden rule, do unto others, you'd have them do unto you. How many limitless possibilities do we have in our life to explain and show the love of God to those around us? Countless. You could look around this room right now and think, I wonder how I could show love to this person, this person, this person, this person, this person. I mean, you'd be exhausted just sitting there, and that would distract our minds. But that's what he's saying here. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What Jesus is able to do is not just fix all the brokenness of the law. That was not the case. He's fixing the brokenness of men. And so let's keep seeing some things that Paul draws on here. Another thing, he says, the ministry of death versus the ministry of righteousness. He said, for those Jews that were teaching about the law, um, in verse 7, he says, Now if the ministry of death carved in the letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? It's like, look, when Moses got this, you know, this ministry of death, these letters that kill, all these kind of things, all your descriptions of this, he said that came with the glory of God that people could not even handle listening to the voice of God. They needed Moses to speak on their behalf. He's like, this is a big deal. If that's what these letters, this is what the law represented, what do you think that Jesus is able to do? How much more different is Jesus going to be than those things? And those were written by the finger of God. It's not that men just created them and decided, I wonder what kind of laws we can come up with. No, God gave them. It was for a purpose, so it had value to it. And that's, that's what we've been doing this entire time. What we've been studying is showing the value in what God was giving to his people. But Jesus stands out differently in verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. So it's this replacing of the law, um, bringing in the righteousness of God in the form of Jesus, because the glory that surpasses it, for it was, uh, for as being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The old law was not meant to be the end-all, be-all. Everything was leading up to Jesus. All the prophecies that we saw in the the Old Testament, the old law, were bringing us to Jesus so we'd understand it. So Jesus can look at us and say, you ought to know better. I don't have to go through and give you the 613 commandments and and go through each one of these. He can look at you and say, "You, you should know better by this point. The guardian of the Old Testament has brought you over and you, you've matured. You've grown up into something better. The church, the fullness of Christ, uh, being brought up into the head, which is Christ. And you should know better by this point. Those things were temporary, but what is permanent is what Jesus establishes. But you keep reading in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, knowing what Jesus has offered to us, we are very bold, not like Moses. Uh, if you were just to think about characters in the Old Testament that are bold, you know, Moses was quite bold how he would speak to people and even how he had to have conversations with God. He was bold. I think about David. He was bold in the, the Psalms that we get to read and how he communicated with God. But what's cool when you read like Hebrews chapter 4, it talks about we can approach the throne of God with confidence different than what these other people because we have something different. We have Jesus now applying to us. 
But he's saying we have this hope. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. So here's our idea coming back in again. Their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Do you want to understand the shadows of the Old Testament? The substance is Jesus. So when you, you look at any shadow around here, you know, I can look at over here where the pews, I can see the, the shape of what I know is a pew, but it's, I'm looking at the shadow and I'm understanding it because I know what a pew looks like. And when I see the substance of the pew, I can see the shadow and I can know that they connect. But if you were just looking at just the shadow by itself and you didn't know where it was coming from, you would think a lot of different things. You know, you think about a shadow puppet and you can make something look like a rabbit, but it's actually somebody's hand. The Old Testament was just a shadow of the things to come. The substance is in Christ. So when you see Jesus, you get to look back and looking at the substance and you can see the shadow that's behind him. You're like, oh, that's what that meant. See, their hearts were hardened because they were only focusing on the shadow. They didn't understand the substance. But when Jesus comes, he's able to remove the veil so that you understand things more fully. Verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Unveiled faces are free. So he's, he talks about this freedom. And there's... I hate how people have abused the freedom of God, thinking that it gives them rights and permits to do whatever they want to. That's not the case at all. The freedom is, how many ways can I love God and love my neighbor as myself while still staying within the boundaries of the ultimate commandments that God gives? It doesn't just do away with everything where there's no other rule other than love. No, love connects all these other things together. So unveiled faces are free and they can see God. See, Moses had to put the veil over his face because people couldn't understand the glory of the Lord. When we see Jesus, awesome. I mean, how does that change just the way that we worship God knowing what Jesus has done? We see him with unveiled faces. And we are transformed to a new degree. Uh, it's a fun little study if you think about the image of God and how we are creating the image of God and we went against what God had created us to be and Jesus brings it back into to order, and he makes us into a new creation, reestablishing and reminding us what God created us to be from the very beginning, but sin changed our, our focus, but he aligns us back, and he says, you worship the creator. And so we are transformed from one degree to the other. That's what an unveiled face looks like. So Paul draws off of uh, these connections that we found in Exodus chapter 34, but for our study, our foundation, we've been thinking about... Um, Deuteronomy 29 in this seeing and not seeing and hearing and not hearing. So there's some connections there. Now, just to get some illustration, so as we go through the New Testament outside of Jesus, if you look at the beginnings of the church and find those people that talk to the Jews, this is going to be brought out even more, even more. So the first person that comes to my mind is Stephen. You know, Stephen is one of those selected men that is going to help serve tables, but he's also going to teach. He's going to tell people. Um, what's going on. And, and he talks to these Jews. He's going to lay it on them. Um, there's a few chapters in the book of Acts that are worth noting that is able to condense down like the history of Israel. 
Acts chapter 7 is one of them. Uh, let's see, you could also do Acts chapter 13, which we're going to see in a second. He takes all the history of Israel, and he draws us a, a thread all the way through leading us to Jesus. And so that's what, that's what uh, Stephen does to these Jews all the way through Acts chapter 7. Well, he gets to the end of his sermon, and this is the response. Uh, he's offered the invitation, and here's how they respond to it. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people. Speaking to the Jews, Stephen's saying these things, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they were killed, those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Like you had every reason. You had... You had the law that was you know, delivered by angels. You had all the, the greatness of it that you could have followed, knowing that this came from God, and you could allow that to soften your hearts to do what you needed to do, but you didn't. He said that you are stiff-necked. I think the, the best way to illustrate this, if you have a stiff neck, past couple of days, I don't know, I woke up and my, my neck hurts, not able to look all the way up. But if you think about waking up and having a stiff neck, and let's say I'm going to walk down this middle aisle right here, and somebody calls my name over here, Normally, I could you know, keep walking my path, and I could look over and I say, hey, and I keep walking. If you got a stiff neck, what usually happens to your body if you were going to turn and look at something? You change direction completely. You see, as we walk in the light, we notice the darkness that is around us. And if we stay solely focused on Jesus and the ultimate source of light, we can keep walking. And all those are, there's things left and right. And although we may stumble every once in a while, we have not fallen off. But if we've got stiff necks, it changes our entire course of direction. Our momentum becomes directed in another way. So he calls them the stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Why did he use this language? Um, Paul's going to talk about it in Romans that we're going to see in just a, a few seconds. So there's an example if you just want to find an illustration of how this works. Uh, Stephen is one of them. The next one is is Paul, of course, and he was the one that really man, just stirred people up on how he saw the law and tried to teach people what the law was supposed to be. In Acts chapter 13, so that full chapter condenses down the history of Israel. This is on his first missionary journey where he's going to all these synagogues and people are persecuting him. Um, they're going to follow him from this city to the next and to the next, and eventually they're going to stone him uh, in Lystra in Acts chapter 14, but he's going to get up and he's going to go back to each one of these cities and establish elders. So it's not going to stop him. But this is, the, this is the resolution he made after talking to these Jews over and over again and hearing their response. This is what he says in verse 38, Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, this, speaking to the Jews, that through this man, speaking of Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. All the Old Testament sacrifices, everything about the Old Testament, it was meant to lead you to Jesus. So that you would know that there needs to be one ultimate death. The death of an animal in these sacrifices, that's not going to cut it. Because I'm not an animal. The animal had to die because I sinned. But it really requires the death of a person. And so Jesus comes in and he says, I'll be your high priest. I'll be your ultimate sacrifice. I'll be everything that the law was directing you to. I will take on that sin. I'll pay the price of sin for you so that you can be free. So you can see and you can be changed to a new degree. So this is, as Paul is preaching this and teaching, you find from here, he says, look, I'm done with you guys. I'm going to the Gentiles because they have a more receptive heart. They will more easily follow some of this because you've allowed yourselves to be blinded. 
in the book of Romans is going to detail that even further. But here's a couple of other instances. Acts chapter 18. Paul's in Corinth. So he's in this uh, mixed city with a lot of different cultures, a lot of different mindsets. And as he's preaching, you know, he, he goes with Priscilla and Aquila. He works there, spends time. It's overall a pretty good experience, although he keeps working with them as we have two letters, First and Second Corinthians. And you can see what he was teaching based off of what we've already studied in Second Corinthians. But here's one of the things that's happening in the middle of the city in Acts chapter 18, 12 through 15. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, so this is in this region, this area, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God. How? Contrary to the law. So they're looking at it the same way they looked at Jesus and saying, he's going against the law. Jesus like, no, 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 I'm fulfilling the law. The law is not going to be done away and, and you know, not a, a jot or anything's going to be done away until everything is fulfilled. He's like, I'm, I'm fulfilling this. And Paul is right in sync with that. He was in the middle of the law, taught it, taught against Christianity, converted to Christianity, and shows us the fuller picture. The veil has been removed, and now he's seeing all this. So they think, though, that he's teaching contrary to the law. He's just trying to unveil them. Verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, look, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to judge on these things. For Paul and what he was teaching, he was directly to the Jews. Now, we'll find where he talks to those non-Jews, those Gentiles, and he uses a whole other tactic for them. But for those that are in there, and even people looking at it, he's like, this is questions about words and names in your own law. These are words on a, a tablet. These are names like Jesus that we don't even understand, but they're just you know, generic names of that time. And it's your own law. You handle it. The same way that we find like Pilate speaking to the Jews. He's like, look, this is concerning your law. Why don't you put them to death yourself? But they still appeal to him. So just a, another connection there. And the last one is in Acts chapter 23 while Paul is teaching in verse 1 through 3. Paul's looking intensely at the, the Jewish council, and he said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Um, Kyle Butt did a really good job, July 14th, our summer series, talking about objective truth, and he used this passage uh, to talk about that a little bit more. So connection there. Number 2, verse 2 rather. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth, speaking of Paul, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you, are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Go and read Acts chapter 23 again and look at Paul's spitting language to them. He's getting on to them. I mean, he is just fed up with how they are viewing the law, how they're viewing each other. And he said, look, why are you getting on to me saying that I'm violating the law? And you, a high priest, the person that's supposed to be leading people uh, you know, to a better understanding of the law, he said, you break the law yourself. So who's more culpable? Who's more responsible and blameworthy? Me for breaking the law or you? Now, Paul's like, I didn't actually break the law. I have a good conscience to say I have not broken the law. So which one's better? I mean, it's just a good logical analysis of what's going on here. So Paul gets on to them and teaches them, look, you guys need to know that we are all, we all have this sin problem that needs to be fixed. And that brings us over to the book of Romans. I want to draw a few conclusions very quickly in our last uh, five minutes from the book of Romans. And you could read the, the whole thing um, 
but I'll go ahead and put the points up there so you have them, but allow me to work through them. So in Romans chapter 1 through 3, if you were going to do an outline of the book of Romans, your first bullet point should be chapters 1 through 3, it's the problem of sin. Here's what Paul says about sin. You can sin by going against nature and creation. So he's a little, you look around you, all the evidence is there. You can know what the proper order of things are supposed to be. So people that start worshiping creation versus the creator, they get everything out of sync. There's a problem there. So he begins there. He's like, you guys should know this kind of thing. Number two, you can sin by going against the moral law or what God has written on the hearts of men. And that comes from Romans chapter 2, verse 15. And the same dialogue that Paul had with Ananias, the high priest, in Acts chapter 23 is the same thing he says in Romans chapter 2. He said, you Jews who have all of the oracles of God, have all the teachings of God, have the law itself, why do you violate it? Why do you judge other people when you yourself do the same thing? We all have a sin problem, and the only way for the veil to be removed is through Christ. The Jews don't have Christ, but we do. So as he's talking about the sin problem, he's like, look, we can all know these aspects of what uh, the, the law of God is all about. In the third uh, chapter, you can sin by negating the law, going against what God has said, the oracles of God, all these teachings. And Paul starts answering questions. He, he's kind of responding to what they're going to say. He's like, so was God's law wrong? Well, no, it wasn't wrong because of this. He said, so if we do wrong, do we, you know, do we just cancel it out? And he said, no, like, by your actions, you're negating that the law actually has made an impact in your life. And that probably should be a better wording of that one, is that you can negate the law in your life, but the law still stands firm. And so what he says in uh, chapter 3, verse 28, for no one is a Jew, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 28, he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Do you remember what Paul said about the uncircumcised of hearts and ears? All of the law itself was meant to cut deeper. And even these teachings about circumcision, a beginning point, even before the law of Moses, what we understand circumcision to be, Abraham and all these other teachings, it's not, it, uh, circumcision is not only outward and physical, verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He said, if you will do what God asks you to do, it's not just so you can have the physical sides of it, just the letter of the law, it's the Spirit of the law. If God asks you to be circumcised and to go through that process, if you love God, you're going to do whatever He asks you to do. That then becomes a matter of the heart, not just the physical act. Because there were a lot of people that were circumcised physically, but they did not act like they were Jews. And that's why he says this is a heart problem. And so the big problem of sin that we find in Romans, it is a heart problem. A longer passage in Romans chapter 3, uh, 21 through 31, talks about God's righteousness through Christ and this law of works and how those all come together. And so use that passage um, because I want to get to our last slide um, and put up these points. But go ahead and mark down Romans chapter 3, 21 through 31. In light of our discussion, I think it will speak very plainly and simply to you. Let's draw one more point, and then uh, we'll let this be the end of our whole series. So the law and sin. Romans 7 is a good way to address this. He starts off with a passage that we use to talk about divorce that uh, is not divorce, but when does a marriage cancel out? He said if the spouse dies, then that marriage is canceled out. Um, so they are unbound and they can go on. So he's talking about death unbinds one from the law. We know this is going to be the death of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 8 talks about that. There had to be a death. Um, rather, Hebrews chapter 9 
talks about how Jesus had to die in order to enact his will, his new covenant. So death unbinds one from the law. All right, so there's a first point. Number two, Christ's death released people from the law, this unveiled face. People come to Romans chapter 7, and they get all tangled up in the wording of sin. And Paul's like, you know, I want to I serve God with my mind, but I've got the flesh that's just, you know, it, it's messing with me left and right, and so I'm just going to serve God with my mind. I'm going to serve, serve uh, you know, sin with my flesh. And it's just how do, we, how do we fix all this problem? He says the law actually taught us how to do this, but Jesus is the one that fills it. The new way of the Spirit versus the old way of the written code. When you're in Christ, there is something new that is able to fix this problem. The law taught people about sin. That's just part of it. It brought us out and it told us what it means to covet, what it means to, to steal, to murder. But the law was good, spiritual, and it showed sin to be sin. I think it's interesting that it calls it good and spiritual. Sin causes issues and disobedience. That's the whole point of this. The heart is distracted. The ears can't hear. The eyes can't see because sin blinds it. But Jesus fixes the sin problem. If you'll just go where Christ is, you will have a solution for all this. Appreciate you guys. Uh, thanks for studying with me over 